A hearty congratulations to Danny and Annie. That is just wonderful news. And thank you for sharing that with us. There's been a lot of great updates. Well, not just great updates, but a lot of significant updates that have been happening in the lives of individuals in our community over the past few months, over the past few weeks. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me or to our leadership team because we want to be praying with you. And we know that some of these situations, as exciting as they are, it is uh, we do need support. Um, and I'm just so thankful for even some of the moms who cook meals or prepare meals for families with newborns where we deliver food. And all these things, I think, are just great expressions of how we are responding to the great love and generosity that Jesus has displayed for us on that cross. We want to be able to reciprocate that to one another in this community. Uh, so like I mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series on First and Second Thessalonians. The sermon series title is called Faith in Uncertain Times. Uh, not only is it very relevant because we are living in uncertain times, the U.S. elections are right around the corner and we know how tightly knit Canada and U.S. are uh, in terms of just the implications of one nation to the other. We know that the pandemic is still going on and as we've been monitoring it, um, yeah, the numbers are continuing to increase. I know personally, individually, as I've been walking with some of you guys, individually, we're all going through our own specific uncertain times. So I feel like faith in uncertain times is not only relevant for what we're going through individually and societally, but biblically speaking as well, because First and Second Thessalonians are one of the very first letters that Paul wrote and he recognizes that as new Christians, um, you're going to go through a lot of uncertain times. And what kind of faith is going to be able to ground you in that as you navigate through difficulties? So not only do I find this very relevant for our current situation, but it's very relevant even in the text of First and Second Thessalonians. And as you can tell from the title, um, Make Me an Offer That I Cannot Ignore. It's really from the phrase, make me an offer that I cannot refuse. I don't know how many Sufjan Stevens fans there are, but he just dropped an album recently and um, it's a play on one of his track titles. But the idea is that one of the greatest ways to be offended is actually being ignored. Um, it's one thing to be rejected. It's one thing for somebody to say no to you or to disagree with you, but to be ignored is probably the greatest offense. If you think about even in your own situation, let's say you're involved in a very important relationship and there wasn't, for whatever reason, you weren't seeing eye to eye and you wrote a letter to whether it's your significant other or somebody that you care deeply about. And you put a lot of thought into this letter. It's a lengthy letter, but there's a lot of thought, love, care in it. And you're pouring out your heart, you're being very vulnerable and you want this letter to somehow uh, relieve the relational tension that you're experiencing. Or let's say you're working and uh, in, at work you feel a little underappreciated. So what you do is you send an email to your employer and you try to create a presentation or something to be able to demonstrate not only your worth and your value, but the ways that you've been contributing in very significant ways over previous projects over the past year or so, um, or whatever. Let's say you're in a situation where you really want to offer something to somebody. And it's one thing for that person to just flat out reject you. It's one thing for that person to just simply say no. But it's quite another if that person doesn't even read 
that long handwritten letter where you poured out your heart and soul. It's one thing for your manager to not even show up to this meeting that you created with him or her, or that he or she didn't even read your email or didn't even look at the presentation or the things that you prepared. Being ignored is the greatest way to be offended, uh, not just simply being rejected. And the reason why I make a big emphasis on whether or not we ignore is because in Christian life, in reality actually, not just a Christian life, is it really comes down to, are we ignoring what God is doing in our lives, how he has been demonstrating his faithfulness, and really, most specifically, the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, or are we submitting, recognizing, and celebrating that? That really is what all of life comes down to, not just Christian life, but even all of life. And when we are living in this mode where we are ignoring him, and we are ignoring his proddings. We are ignoring the ways that he's prompting our hearts, trying to touch us, trying to move us, trying to remind us of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Because we are so preoccupied with other things, we may fail to recognize just how deeply offensive that is to God. On the other hand, when we are living that type of mode of life, where yes, we are still experiencing problems, we are still experiencing a lot of uncertainty. We are still experiencing the anxiety of we don't know what's around the corner. Um, but we recognize that God is with us. We submit to the fact that Jesus came and he died for us. He is present in our lives. His spirit is living in our hearts. And he will one day return and make all this not only new, but the way it's supposed to be. Even though we still experience difficulties, if we live in that type of mode of thinking, mentality, attitude, then we are truly bringing great pleasure, honor, worship to God. Now, for some of us, as I just kind of staged it that way, we recognize that, you know what? Even my ability to respond to the gospel, and I'm not talking about only at the time when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior at the point of conversion, but I'm talking about every hour, every waking second of our lives. When we think about it in those two really drastically stark paths, we recognize that every single one of us, we fail to respond to the gospel appropriately. I, myself included. There are many times throughout the day where something comes up or I get frustrated. And instead of thinking about who Jesus is and what he has done in my life, I ignore that. And this offer of the gospel, so to speak, is something that I not only reject, but I just completely ignore. I do this, we all do this. That is what it means for us to continue to live in this sinful, this battle between our sinful nature and the new nature that God has given us, this new heart that God has given us, which is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because this dynamic that I'm just mentioning to you right now, this tension, Paul is aware of it. And the very first letter, the very first chapter that he writes to 1 Thessalonians, again, this is probably the very first letter that he's written. And this is probably one of the very first, if not the first church that he has founded. The opening letter, he understands that the reason why he is so excited to write to the Thessalonians is because they understand this tension. They are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul also understands that their ability to respond and not ignore, but respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually not based 
on them themselves. Even our ability to respond to Jesus Christ, the gospel, even in that act, we desperately need God's grace. Um, I'll unpack this a little bit more, but let me just tease that out just a little bit more for you to kind of get a hint at the significance. Because many times in church, I know not everybody grew up in the church, we think about God's grace as Him, God sending His Son to die for us, for Him resurrecting and depositing His Spirit in our lives. We think of that as grace. And it truly is grace that He would go through such great lengths, He would lower Himself, take on the flesh, take on the embodiment of His own creation, suffer and die, pour out His actual blood for us, taste death on our behalf, taste the wrath of God like we just sang about. All those things are very gracious. All those things are based on God's grace and God's grace alone. Those things we do not deserve. But let me tell you, God's grace goes further still. Because even though that is the good news, even though that is quote-unquote the offer, our hearts are so dead to our sin, like we talked about a few weeks ago in Ezekiel chapter 36. Our hearts are hearts of stone, every single one of us. That even when Jesus does that for us, even if with our very own naked eyes that we see Jesus himself hanging naked, bleeding profusely, our hearts are hearts of stone. And when we see that, we might not actually be moved to repentance. We may look at that just like the Roman soldiers or the Jewish authority figures and mock Jesus. And it does nothing to our hearts. The offer of the gospel for us to actually accept and respond to it appropriately, even that act, we need God's grace. Because left to ourselves, we still have hearts of stone. We still have hearts where we're going to rationalize, be rebellious. Our hearts are still seeped into our weakness. Our ability to look at Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and say, Wow, God, you did that for me? I once was your enemy and now you're dining with me. You're inviting me to your dinner table. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I am now going to offer up my life to you. That very act that I just described, even that, we need God's grace to do that. So not only is the offer of the gospel soaked in the grace of Jesus, soaked in the grace of God, but our ability to accept that offer, our ability to submit and recognize that offer, even that we need God's intervention. And that is what we're going to unpack in this first chapter. And when we think about how God intervenes through how sinful and how depraved our hearts are, then when we take a step back and when we think about the uncertain times that we live in at a societal or individual level, we recognize if God was able to overcome my heart of stone and transplant it with a heart of flesh, then surely, even in these uncertain times, God will continue to pull through for me. So as we do every week, if you have any questions, prayer requests, prayers, feel free to text these. All of these are anonymous. The phone number you're going to see throughout the entire worship service. And this is our way of just being much more uh, reflective of what God has to say for us. So let me start with First Thessalonians. We're just going to go over the first chapter for the first sermon. So it reads and it begins like this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is a typical greeting. And Paul is basically writing this letter 
but he's with Silvanus and Timothy. They are his partners in ministry. And he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's a typical greeting, but even though it's typical, uh, it's also loaded with a lot of theological depth that is going to be unpacked through the rest of the verses. So we'll continue on. Verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you. We're always thanking, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Before I continue on any further, I just want you to pick up on the theme of the Trinity. And I understand not everybody grew up in the church. The Trinity, everybody's heard of the name. But in biblically speaking, Trinity denotes that God is one God, but He is three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And I know you're thinking, how does one equal three? How does three equal one? Um, we can do a deep dive on that later. Or if you have a question about that, feel free to text that away. But for the purposes of keeping the sermon at an appropriate length, whether you grew up at the church or not, God is God. He is one God. But there are three persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit. And the reason why I mention that here is because in this chapter, you see the interaction of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It really just demonstrates how holistic and comprehensive God is in saving us. And again, I'll unpack that. So we remember you before our God, our Father, for your work of faith. So what is Paul thankful for? There are three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these are all work type of language. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Steadfast is an adjective that you would typically use to describe a very competent laborer or worker. So he's looking at the Thessalonians and the first thing that he's so thankful for is, man, you guys are very productive. You guys work for Jesus Christ. You guys are putting your money where your mouth is. You are putting in the hard work and we're very thankful. We notice that. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And already we have all three persons of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among for your sake. Now let me just unpack this a little bit and try to connect the dots. Uh, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned all of life is truly responding to God. We're either responding to Him or we're rejecting, ignoring Him. Now, what does it mean to respond to God? What Paul first highlights is the reason why he's so thankful for the Thessalonians, the reason why he can't stop praying and thinking about them in his prayers is because the Thessalonians, they model to Paul what it means to truly respond to God, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are responding in textbook style exactly the way that everybody should. And the first indication that they are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a rightful way is what I highlighted. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. He's saying, I can tell that you're responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? Because you're putting your work in it. You're putting your labor in it and you're doing it in such a steadfast way. And he's thinking to himself, wow, the ways that they're loving each other, 
the ways that they're serving each other, the ways that they're also laboring in their own jobs, whether it's the agricultural produce or making sure that they make enough for their own living, which is another topic that we're going to see in the rest of the letter. He recognizes, by your work ethic, within the church and outside the church, I can tell that you are responding to the gospel of Jesus. And because you are responding to the gospel of Jesus, every time I think about you, I'm so thankful. I am so thankful for you. I can't stop praying for you. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I can totally resonate with Paul. Because when you see people who are responding to the gospel in whatever baby steps that they're doing, it brings so much delight into your heart. Not only as a pastor, but this is a... This is a phenomenon that you could recognize as a teacher, as a parent, anybody where you care about somebody and you see that person responding to your teaching or responding to the right things, you, it melts your heart and you can't help but to be thankful. And the specific way, the specific symptom that Paul sees is the work ethic. Now, I know when I talk about work ethic, labor, steadfastness, a lot of things come to mind. For some of us, we are workaholics and we obsess and we idolize our work. And I might kind of fall into this camp where these days I work 80 and 90 hours a week, um, even though it's been very chaotic with what's going on at home. Um, back in the heyday, I used to work even more. I love working. And this verse, I don't want us to distort it and to think, then in order for us to respond to the gospel, we need to be workaholics. Because that's not what Paul is talking about. And that's not a biblical understanding of work. Nor do I want us to think, when we think about work, especially in a church context, we're probably thinking flashbacks of moments where we felt burnt out. Where there were moments, whether it's our university days, young adult days, high school days, whenever, where you felt like you were like the Thessalonians, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, you were involved in all these different types of ministries. And after a few months, a few years, you got burnt out, you got jaded. And even right now, you might be trying to recover from those scars and those wounds. Um, but let me tell you that that's not exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about something much deeper. Because the, the reason why we burn out, and even when I think about my own self, I've been in the ministry for, at this point, was it 2020, for almost 25 years straight. And when I say straight, I mean no breaks. Leading small group year after year after year, being part of children's ministry, discipleship, mentorship, doing admin, band, anything and everything you can think of, I've been doing. And it's really been, we're in 2020, I can't believe it. It's literally been 24 straight years. No rest, no break. And as I mentioned, I do have a workaholic tendency with just in my secular work and other things. And one of the things that I realized and as I've been walking with Jesus is the reason why we burn out and the reason why we idolize our work, become workaholics, is really because we're not doing it out of a response of who Jesus is. Uh, the reason why we burn out is because we're doing it for another reason. Maybe we're trying to address a need. Maybe it feels good because people recognize us and we're, in, we're making an impact and, and it's really a self-centered thing. Or maybe because we feel guilty, but it's not purely and primarily because 
of a response to what Jesus has done for us. The reason why we are workaholics and we idolize work is because it's not a response to what God has done in our lives. It's really us trying to pursue our own egotistical, narcissistic motivations and drive if we are to be honest with ourselves. There is that promotion that we want. We want people to be able to recognize how productive, how successful, how reliable, how trustworthy we are. And those things, being trustworthy and being reliable, are not wrong in themselves. But if they are not being done as a response to what God has done in our lives, then those are idols. And that is why I say there's a fine line between whether we're sinning or whether we're worshiping. There really is no middle ground. We're either worshiping in our work, in our ministry with church, because we're doing everything as a response to what Jesus has done for us. And therefore, we're not going to idolize things. We're not going to get burnt out because we're constantly being fueled by Jesus' love. Or we are sinning. We are uh, distorting, rejecting, suppressing God's involvement, His offer, the gospel of Jesus. And we're doing these things, even though they are noble things, for other reasons and motivation. And therefore, it's not surprising that we end up being burnt out, jaded, or we end up idolizing and becoming workaholics. Uh, And I'm sure there are other ways where we look at work, whether it's within the church or outside the church, where it's really not the actions that matter, but it's really at the end of the day, our heart. Are we doing it because of Jesus or are we doing it for any other reason? And for Paul, The reason why he's so thankful is not because, please, like this is really important for you to recognize this fine distinction, but it's so significant, is not because they are simply doing a lot of work. They are simply doing a lot of labor. They are simply steadfast people. The reason why Paul is so thankful that he can't stop praying for them is because they are doing these things as a response to who Jesus is in their lives. And let me demonstrate, it's in the text. So let me demonstrate it for us. Let me just clear out the highlights here. And okay, so here, because our gospel came to you, he gives the reason. The reason why we're thankful for your work, your labor, steadfast, is because the gospel came to you. In other words, because you are responding to the gospel. This isn't because you're just industrious people who have wonderful work ethic, but he's saying because you are responding to the gospel. And let me make this even clearer. Let's just clear this out. Notice the, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about just random work of faith, random labor of love, or random steadfastness of hope. The better translation in the Greek is not in our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is your work of faith, your work ethic, your labor of love, your dedication, your steadfastness of hope, your consistency, your reliability, those things are all rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the beauties of the gospel, as you know, our brother Terry reminded us, even as our sister Esther prayed through it, is it's not so much, as I mentioned so many times, it's not just a ticket to heaven that we put in our back pocket, we live our lives however we want, and then on judgment day, when we are approaching God's throne and we're at the pearly gates, we're wondering, oh my goodness, did I do enough? Oh wait, I have this ticket to heaven. God, let me in. 
No, the beauty of the gospel is we are united with Jesus Christ. His attributes, his character are ours, and he takes on our sinful tendencies, and he pays for all of that. We are united with Jesus Christ. That is the biggest blessing, benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we are actually, we are one with him. And because we are one with him, that means that in our work ethic, in our dedication, in our consistency, steadfastness of hope, labor of love, however you want to phrase it, all those things must be an extension of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we truly serve the church, when we truly work our secular jobs or however you want to categorize the work that we do outside of church, if we are doing it in our union with Jesus, in our relationship with Him, that is what Paul is delighted about. As soon as we don't do that, that's when things like workaholism, idolatry, burnout, jadedness, that's where those things become a real clear and present danger in our lives. Not only is Paul saying, and that's why I mentioned earlier, our ability to respond to Jesus, his gospel, even that is God's grace. We need Jesus. We need to be united with him in order to even respond with a labor of love, a work ethic, work of faith, a steadfastness of hope. We see Paul talking about this even more. He says, for, because, because the reason why you're working like this, the reason why you're able to respond to the gospel appropriately instead of ignoring him, the reason why you're able to do all these wonderful things, for, because, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Again, we see another instance of the grace of God. He's saying the reason why you're able to respond to the gospel in this way is not only because you're united with Jesus, which is point one, one instance of God's grace, but the second instance of God's grace is God loved you first. God chose you. You are not responding. Your ability to respond appropriately to the gospel is not because you yourself are such a great person, but it's because God chose you. Before the foundations of the earth were even laid, he knew who you would be. He knew even to the point of you in your mother's womb. He foresaw all of it. He knew all of your wickedness. He knew all the different ways that you would rebel. He knew the ways that your faith is fragile. He knew all the different mistakes and experiences and the baggage that you bring to the table. He knew all those things. And yet he chose you. He loved you. And because he chose you, no matter what in would happen in your life, it is a guarantee that you would not only hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that you would actually respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in an appropriate way where you become united with Jesus. And based on that union with Jesus, you're able to do a work of faith, a labor of love, and have a steadfastness of hope. Do you see how all these ideas are connecting? That it's one, it's one thing that God is gracious by sending His one and only Son to us. But God is also gracious for us to recognize and to submit to the fact that Jesus was sent to us. It's because God first loved us. God chose us. And I know here some of us are wondering, oh, what about predestination, election, and free will, all these different things? 
And unfortunately, this sermon cannot be about that. But if you have a question, feel free to text that away. But the reason why this sermon cannot be about that is because that's not really the main focus of chapter 1. If we ever do a sermon on Romans chapter 9 to 11, where that tension between predestination, election, and free will is at focus, then I can unpack that. But for the purposes of this sermon, the idea of God choosing us, it's scattered throughout all of Scripture. We see it here in the first chapter. It's because A is true, and because B it is meant to encourage you. It's not meant for you to spiral into some philosophical debate about the meaning of life and whether or not we have any type of volitional power as humans. But it's all to encourage you, because like I just mentioned, if God chose you, then that means there is nothing that you can or cannot do. There is nothing that you have or have not done that will make you fall outside of the bounds of His securing love and grace. He chose you. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's in the bag. And if you are like me, and especially in light of 2020, wow, we recognize my faith many times is not up to snuff. My love for Jesus many times is very limited. But thank you that you chose me. And because that is irrevocable, There's nothing that can make me fall outside of the bounds of your love and your grace. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to humble us. It's meant for us to recognize that even our ability to respond to Jesus, even that is something that we utterly need God for. Not only does he talk about union with Jesus, which is the first instance of God's grace, the second instance that I just talked about, God the Father loved and chose you, But we also see because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And basically what he is hinting at is your ability to hear and receive the gospel is because the Holy Spirit convicted your heart. Like I mentioned, even if all of us, we were to time travel to 2,000 years ago and we see Jesus hung on that cross. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit convicting us, we would just look at that and be like, wow, that's a shame. But it wouldn't move us. Even if 2,000 years ago we went to time travel and we look at the empty tomb, we even see with our own eyes Jesus resurrecting from the grave and we see his glorified body and he's doing wonderful things. Apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit left to ourselves, we're going to rationalize that and be like, What does this have to do with me? I don't know how to respond to this. This means it's interesting. It's quite a miracle, but I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to submit to this person. I'm not going to submit to God. It's only because of the Holy Spirit convicting us. So we see as the first point of chapter one is that our ability to respond to the gospel We need to be united with Jesus, the Son. We need to be loved and chosen by the Father. And we need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. We see God in His three persons so comprehensively working in our hearts. Because again, left to ourselves, there is no inherent good. Like we talked about a few weeks ago in Ezekiel 36, our hearts are hearts of stone. It is dead. We need the Father, Son, and Spirit to even respond to the gospel. 
Uh, we see the same pattern continue in this next portion of the letter. So let's read on. And you Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now before we move on, let me just unpack some of this. Another instance, another symptom that Paul sees of responding to the gospel in a right way is that they became imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and of the Lord. So Paul recognizes, man, Thessalonians, you guys are truly responding to Jesus because I can see in your work ethic. And I can also see it because you're imitating us. You're imitating the ways we do our ministry. You're imitating the ways we love others. You're imitating the way we're sacrificial, the ways that we're humble, the ways that we're loving, the way our work ethic, all these different things. And you're also imitating, obviously, the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. For you receive the word in much affliction. Because even in your persecution, even in the midst of your adversities, and it was namely persecution for the Thessalonians, but it's adversities and afflictions of many kinds can be applied here. You still received it, the gospel of Jesus, with joy. Of the Holy Spirit. And how, what did that result to? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They didn't have social media at the time, so for their reputation to be spread out to other regions means that, wow, it is truly a great privilege that they are, not only are they imitators, but now they themselves are being an example to others. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Wow. So Paul is saying, you know, not only are we so thankful for you because of your work ethic and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope, but we're also thankful because you have imitated us and you have been able to be faithful to the gospel even in the midst of your affliction to the point where now you guys are an example to Christians all around the world. And let me unpack some of the relevance and how this can be uh, significant for our situation. Is I do want to emphasize, why does Paul say you became imitators of us and of the Lord? Why didn't he just say you became imitators of the Lord? Which I think for many of us, we will think that's probably a little bit more biblical, more modest and humble. You would never go to somebody and say, I'm so thankful for you. Why are you so thankful for me? I'm thankful for you because you became an imitator of me. Nobody would say that because that sounds very conceited. But Paul, I mean, I'm re- these are his words. I'm not putting words in his mouth. Why wouldn't he just say imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ? And here I want to emphasize the value of a church community. We talked about this as a relational community. But you need to be in a community of brothers and sisters where you can imitate others. Because part of the way that God designed salvation is, yes, we are ultimately following after Jesus. That's why we're called Christians, little Jesuses, literally. But many of us, we don't really know how Jesus would respond in certain situations. Like we can kind of glean and guess from principles. But for instance, how does Jesus respond when he's in traffic? How does he respond when he comes home from a very stressful day at work? How does he respond when he gets laid off from work? We can, again, glean principles from that in Scripture. 
But God has also given us another way. It's obviously subordinate to scripture. So please don't get this, take this the wrong way. But he has given us brothers and sisters who, because we are all living within the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Jesus. When we see a brother or a sister who responds in, in response to the power of the gospel, they're able to handle a layoff or a traffic jam or whatever. We can imitate that. God has so set up the body of Jesus, the community, so that not only are we imitating Jesus through the things that we know in Scripture, but we can also imitate Jesus through what His Spirit is doing in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters. And I see examples of that even here in our uptown community where I'm just so thankful for the different ways that all of us, we have been expressing our faith and our trust, our ways of responding to the gospel in difficult situations. Uh, I love some of the each part testimonies that we do during Sunday service, and we have another one lined up next week, where we're able to see how, wow, my sister went through that difficult situation. All the family health problems, all the uncertainties in work, and I saw her place her trust in God I saw her die to herself. I saw her ultimately worship Jesus and place all of her hope in Christ during this time. I'm going to imitate that. And that is the beauty of church community. And that is why Paul says, imitators of us and of the Lord. And I know for some of us, we're thinking, wow, I would love it for somebody to imitate me. But unfortunately, man, there's nothing significant in my life. I'm struggling with unemployment. If you know about my past history, nobody's going to want to imitate me. I've made too many mistakes. And it's interesting because as I've been preparing this message uh, over the past week, I met up with a few of you guys and that's exactly what you guys were sharing with me where you don't really see how God is using these afflictions of your life. Whether it is unemployment or whether it is previous mistakes that you've made and you're suffering the consequences. And one of the things that I've noticed when people have quote-unquote imitated me, I know that sounds really weird. I'm just using Paul's language, so please don't take that the wrong way. Is people imitate me not because of my strengths, but because of the afflictions that I've gone through in my life. And this is where I think Paul connects the idea of imitating and affliction. Is you gravitate towards people, not because they are perfectly perfect people who've never experienced failure. But if you really think about it, you imitate people because those people actually experience afflictions and failures. And what inspires you is their way, their tenacity, their ability to overcome that. And the reason why I mention that is because I know for many of us, we discount ourselves because of the afflictions that we've experienced. We discount ourselves thinking that we have no significant role in this relational church community because of the problems or the mistakes that we've made. But let me encourage you, it's because of your afflictions. It's because you are sensitive and empathetic towards pain and you remember how, how excruciating those wounds are, that people will gravitate towards you 
and that they will end up imitating you and that you can actually be an example. If you are able to respond to that pain with the hope of Jesus Christ. So that's why he's saying, because of the affliction that you experience, for the Thessalonians, when they experience that affliction, they're thinking, nobody thinks that we're special people. Nobody thinks that we're important. In fact, because of my afflictions, I'm sure we are subpar Christians. And when Macedonia and Achaia hears of us, they're probably going to think, ah, we're not up to snuff. We're uh, the, the, the category down. But Paul's saying, no, it's because of your afflictions and because of that, you're actually an example to many other people. But our ability to even be imitators of Jesus, our ability to endure affliction, our ability to be examples of others, even that is not left to ourselves. Like I mentioned, it is God's grace. So let me just clear everything. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in, in much affliction. What? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit needed to be present in their lives in order for them to be imitators, in order for them to endure affliction, and in order for them to ultimately become examples to Macedonia, Achaia, and everywhere else. Our ability to be able to respond to the gospel, we need more of the Holy Spirit. We need His joy. We need His conviction. We need His stirring. We need His prompting. And the reason why I belabor this point time and time again is not only because it's, that's the way it's written in the very first chapter of this letter, is also to encourage you. Because I know for many of us, we're wondering, okay, I'm trying to respond to the gospel. I really am. I'm really trying to take these baby steps, but I keep failing. Yes, every Sunday I feel a little inspired, but by Monday morning, I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like I'm always back to the drawing board time and time again. And I'm trying to encourage you. I'm encouraging you. Don't worry. Continue to persevere. Continue to try. And don't let those failures make you think that for some reason maybe you're not chosen or loved by the Father or, or the, you're not united with Jesus or any of those things. No, it means that God is not done with you yet. It means that God is trying to teach you and really emphasize and sear into our hearts that even your ability to do baby steps we can't do that by our own strength. We need more of God. And what that, how, what that relate, how that translates in our practical living is instead of trying so hard, instead of depending upon our own strength so much, what we do is we end up depending on God more. We channel our self-reliant efforts and instead we transfer that to God, I need you. We become desperate. We become needy. We become hungry. We become absolutely, utterly dependent upon God. And that's the exact type of heart that God is looking for in all of us. And when we have that type of mentality, that's when we're able to experience these type of transformations, these type of benefits of the gospel. Um, let's continue on. He says, for they themselves, the people all around the world, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, this is the last part of the first chapter, is what does responding to the gospel ultimately boil down to? And hopefully if you've been with us, you can guess. It really boils down to two things. And that is repentance and that is faith. Uh, that's really the bread and butter in responding to the gospel of Jesus. If you're responding out of repentance and faith, then those things like the labor of love, the work of faith, the steadfastness of hope, imitating, enduring affliction with joy, being an example of others, all those things will follow suit. Trust me. But the bread and butter, the most elemental, foundational ways of responding to the gospel is A, repentance, and B, faith. We, talk, we see this throughout scripture. And Paul highlights this here as well, is how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What is that sentence saying? How would you summarize that with one word? Repentance. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Many of us, we know the definition of repentance is, is really a 180 degree turn. It is really recognizing that you're going this way and your mentality, your viewpoint, your thinking, your attitude, all these things are actually so wrong that you need to actually do a 180 degree turn and go this way. That is repentance. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this isn't just about repentance at conversion. We talked about this, uh, I think, last week in Jeremiah chapter 29 and even Ezekiel 36, as I mentioned earlier, is we need to have a repentant mentality lifestyle. Otherwise, we're not really responding to the gospel is there has to be instances in our lives, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it is, but there has to be moments in our lives where we recognize, wow, I was this way. I was thinking like this. But when I thought about who God is, when I thought about what Jesus Christ has done for me, I recognize, wow, I, I'm wrong. I am in the wrong. That is repentance. It's not we have to start crying and weeping and make a whole theatrical show out of it, that, is a, that could be a symptom of repentance. But fundamentally, repentance is that 180 degree turn. Because of who God is, we recognize, wow, I need to think differently. I need to have a different attitude. I need to act differently. I need to be different. And this is something that we need consistently. The other idea is not only repentance, the other idea is faith. It's one thing for us to recognize we're in the wrong, but it's another thing for us to say, wow, my confidence is not in myself, it is not even in my own ability to repent. Because even as it says in Romans chapter 2, repentance is a, even that is an expression of God's grace in our lives. We can't do that on our own. But we need faith. We need to depend on Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. Now, let me just break this down even more because verse 10 is also loaded. To wait for his son from heaven. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. We talked about this last week in Jeremiah chapter 29. When Jesus returns, he will make everything the way it's supposed to be. The new heavens and the new earth. We're going to get decked out, glorified bodies. And our, the most important thing about that is our default mode of existence is we are constantly going to be responding to Jesus. Everything that we do is going to be worship. We're going to recognize, submit to, and celebrate his character and his involvement in our lives. So when we hold a newborn baby, when we eat that burrito that we've been you know, having a craving for, what every instance of our life is going to be out of, wow, this burrito, these flavors are all created ultimately because God is a God who is a God of diversity. And he wants us to not only eat sustenance for the sake of our biological well-being, but for us to enjoy these wonderful flavors, these variety of flavors that when you combine them in a specific combination, it produces this, this fusion of flavor, which is this burrito. And you're glorifying God because you're eating this burrito. I know that sounds crazy, but imagine having your default mode of existence like that. It is like better than a honeymoon phase with your loved one. Where, you know, in your honeymoon phase, every waking moment, you're just absolutely in love with your significant other. Whether you're eating, the same type of metaphor. We're going to have that all of eternity with God. Because we cannot help but to recognize, submit, and celebrate His character and involvement in our lives. Jesus is going to come back and He's going to allow us to do that. We, Paul saying, wait for that. Place your faith in that. Place your trust in that. Because when you recognize that that is your destiny, when you recognize that that is your outcome, that that is a sure shot guarantee of how your life is going to end up, then that will give you the ability to live out this faith during these uncertain times. Not only faith in what Jesus will do, but faith in what Jesus has done, whom he raised from the dead. Again, this is the bread and butter of death and resurrection of Jesus. We talk about this all the time. The death of Jesus cancels out all of our sin, forgives us so that our hearts are slate clean. But the resurrection means that his spirit has empowered us. And as we looked at in Ezekiel chapter 36, he has given us a new heart, a new spirit, so that now we actually seek after him. Now that we actually desire to respond and to recognize and to submit and celebrate his character and involvement instead of constantly living sinfully. And then he says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, he's also talking once again about Jesus' second coming. Basically, what we see here in verses 9 to 10 is how do we fundamentally respond to the gospel? Repentance and faith. In our daily living, it is repentance for me that has given me great joy in the period of affliction that I've been experiencing. I've shared with many of us, these have been one of the most stressful times of my life. But it's repentance, constantly reminding myself of how I don't deserve His grace. I don't deserve His love. I don't deserve any of these things. So, and yet he gave up his son for me. Certainly, 
I can endure this affliction if God has given me so much love that was so sacrificial. This idea of faith is ultimately, my hope is not in whatever career aspirations I have, whatever aspirations I have for my kids or whatever. Like Those things are so shaky. They're, they're so temporal. They're so, they're so small-minded. But my hope is one day, my default mode of existence is I won't be able to help but to adore and recognize God's character and his involvement in my life. My hope is, Jesus, you pay for all of my sin already. There's nothing that I can or cannot do. It is secure, my salvation. And even my growth to become more like your son, Jesus, is not based on my ability, but it's really based on the fact that you have not only given me your blood to wash me, but you have given me your spirit to empower and to alive and vivify me so that I can continue to grow in that. So that when there are moments where I feel unmotivated, callous, complacent, I know that the Holy Spirit is the one that is overcoming those things so that I can continue to seek after God. Um, now, I know that a lot of this may sound a little abstract, and here I just want to point us as one very practical implication is these are the very topics that we're going to be covering in a much more personal, relevant way in our discipleship program this year. Uh, I don't know if I have an image. Okay, so yeah, so for this year, we're going to focus on a book called How People Change. And it's not just a matter of reading it, because intellectually, it's not the most complex thing, but we're going to do it in a relational way, where we're going to break down what does it mean for repentance and faith to become part of our everyday life. So in everyday situations, everyday conversations, everyday relationships, we are actually responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. And through that, we will be able to experience what it means to have a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope, a work of faith, being imitators, being examples, being able to endure affliction. All those things come from the ability of responding to the gospel through repentance and faith in our everyday situation. Um, I'm not going to be able to unpack all those things in a sermon. So we're going to do this in a more personalized setting in our discipleship program. We'll have an announcement for that, but tonight is actually the last day to sign up because we do want to get started with the book study. So we'll have more announcements, but that is one very practical way of responding to this sermon. Let's say the sermon was a little too abstract. This book and the ways that we're going to go through this book will help us flesh some of this out in our discipleship team. Uh, so in order to wrap up the sermon, I just want to just quickly cover some key ideas as a summary. Is responding to the gospel requires continual repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are not just things that you've done at the altar call when you got converted. We see clearly we need to do this continually, every day. And this leads to labor, work, and steadfastness. It's not prone to burnout or prone to workaholism. And also it leads to being an imitator and an example. Not only are we imitating Jesus, uh, whether it's through scripture or whether it's through a relational community, but as we do that, we ourselves become an example to others as well. And even our response to the gospel is dependent on the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is humbling, but it's also incredibly encouraging.
Because for those of us who are struggling, don't worry. It's not up to you. It's up to God. Be encouraged. He's not finished with you yet. You are united with Jesus. The Father has loved and chosen you. The Holy Spirit is the one who is convicting and placing joy in your heart. You're not alone. You'll get through this because God guarantees it. Uh, at this time, I want to give us an opportunity to respond. Uh, if you have questions or if you have prayer requests or if you want to text away a prayer, I do want to alert us to that. I also want to give us an opportunity to respond through offering as well because one way of responding is by giving up our entire lives to God. When we think about what He has given to us, our, our giving back is really just, it is what it is. It is a giving back. Everything we give is what we have first received from God. Uh, so financial tithe is also one way of expressing that. So I just want to give us an opportunity to do this, um, whether it is texting or whether it is financial tithing, um, before um, we move into the next part of our worship. Uh, for those of us um, who may not have immediate messages to text or whatever, I just want us to pause our hearts and really reflect how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so I'll just give us maybe um, a moment to interact with God at this time. <laughs> 